Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, there is so much going on. A lot has happened in the last two weeks since we last spoke. Uh, but before we get into all of that, which which we will, um, how are you doing? How, how's your last couple weeks been? How, how have you enjoyed the World Series and, and your own baseball experiences? Uh, well, I've enjoyed the World Series, and, and it's funny. Um, I'm going to take this opportunity to just sort of reannounce the fact that we just relaunched our site. And the timing was fortuitous because we had had uh, I, as we got closer, we just sort of said, you know what, let's let's launch on November 1st. Nice, clean date. And thinking, well, maybe the World Series would still be going on. But as it turns out, the World Series ended literally that day, that night. And so, um, you know, a lot of people said, hey, perfect timing because the offseason has just started and you launched a brand new site. So um, please, it was sort of a coincidence, sort of not. But um, I'm pleased that that happened. So if you haven't checked out our new site, please do. Lots of new features. And I just want to say thank you also to all the new subscribers we've been getting because we now have premium options um, and premium tiers that have a lot of new features on them that are ad-free and have a, some cool stuff. So a lot of people are subscribing, so appreciate that. Uh, so thank you, everybody who's done that. And um, we'll be put, you might have noticed that we've been tweeting a lot more about not just you know, the usual stuff about trades, but also about sites, that, you know, our new features on our site and some interesting sort of contract decisions, which we'll get into, which are also part of our new model because we're talking also about our estimates for free agent contracts and extensions and such. So we go into, we've expanded our scope a lot more than just trade value here. So, so, and because it's the season for contract option decisions, as we'll get into, We've got a lot going on, a lot to talk about tonight. Yeah, just just to rattle down the list of, of what's new on the site. Obviously, redesign and improved performance. We heard all of you and we experienced it ourselves of times where we just try to click on a page and it would load for about five minutes and then crash on us. Like We, we saw that before. That shouldn't be happening these days um, with the new site. So those are both big pluses to me. But then as far as new features go, the value matcher makes trade simulator it makes the trade simulator a lot more powerful a lot more fun um and then as you were just explaining the future trade value timeline future free agent timeline and future extension timeline we have new merchandise we have subscription tiers with all of those benefits as well as ad free viewing and, and more beyond that so there's a whole lot to get into here we have an explainer article up on the site that gives a, a brief overview of each of these new items uh, that are included we have tutorial videos on how to use all of the new tools, and we're going to be digging into some of these new items a bit more pointedly in future episodes, but this one is already pretty jam-packed with all yep. of these, you know, start of the off-season option decisions and early free agent decisions and an early trade and, and front office movement and managerial movement. There's so much going on right now. Um we need to we need to prioritize the news first because the, the the funny thing about news is uh, if you let it sit too long it gets old. So mm. we will circle back to uh, getting more in depth on the website itself. But I will go ahead and link to both the tutorial playlist as well as the explainer article in the show notes of this episode. Please go check them out. And as always, we are accessible on both Twitter, Blue Sky, as well as by email. If there are any questions on anything or, or you find anything that doesn't look right or, or whatever the case may be. Um, but yeah, I think that about covers it on that. John, did you have anything to add? 
Um, well, you know, I just want to comment that you're seeing a lot of transactions partly because there's a deadline coming up to get 40-man rosters set and option decisions made. But also, uh, most of the teams have had time. So while the playoffs were going on, they were making all these decisions and doing all their research and talking to players and stuff. So you're seeing a flurry of news items right now that reflect, yeah, they've already done their homework. Uh, so it's not like they just suddenly, you know, right after the news, right after the World Series ended, yes, they can announce them, but they've been preparing for them for a while now. So that's why you're getting them in a flurry. Um, but I also wanted to just call out one more feature that we'll get into as the weeks go on, uh, which is our sort of team rankings um, and player rankings, because sometimes it's fun. Sometimes we'll post about like, hey, who has the best farm system? Who has the weakest farm system? Um, and so you'll find those rankings as well. We're the only ones that we know of who can sort of amalgamate the various sort of sources and, and give a give a more sort of complete list and more objective list, if you will. In addition to that, you can see how teams are constructed and based on how much fill they have in field value, how much they have in salary, how much they have in surplus, all these sorts of ways to filter and slice and dice. So it's a lot of fun to play around with. Uh, so it's another benefit of having a, a subscription. So I encourage you to check it out. Yes, indeed. Um, I think I want to get us at least two or three minutes here. I know there's a lot that we need to get to this episode, but I want to at least touch on the World Series, since that's kind of a big deal for a lot of people. <laughs> um, Rangers take down the D-backs in five games. It was truly unexpected for either of them to get to that point in the first place, but it kind of speaks to successes in roster construction in two very different ways, and maybe those are two things that we circle back to throughout the offseason um, as those teams make moves and give us an opportunity to talk more about the deep drafts that the D-backs had that let them get to this point, or the aggressive free agent spending that we've talked about with the Rangers a lot of times that got them where they ended up. Um, but really two success stories. You, you don't always get that with a World Series, right? Usually one team wins, one team loses. It's a success for the winner, and for the loser, it's a uh, bummer. we got to come back and try again next year. And there's certainly some of that, especially being on the ground here in Phoenix, uh, people weren't very happy. <laughs> I went to uh, I went to Game Four, and they went down ten to one pretty early, and people people let it be known that they were not thrilled about that. Um, but I, I think the now the dust has settled a little bit. The resounding um, response from D-backs fans has been, you know, this was all kind of house money anyway. We weren't supposed to get this far, and they have a really bright future. Both of these teams do with all of the young players that they have. Um, did you have any other additional takeaways from this World Series? I know there was a lot of controversy over, oh, the viewership and things like that. I, I guess, what was it like for you from the other side of the country on this one? You know, I live in New Jersey, so it's pretty close to New York City in that area. And I think people, I mean... Look, all baseball fans were interested in it. Um, you know, I know a lot of Yankees and Mets fans who didn't really care that much, but I don't want to focus on that because I think it was a, a pretty good World Series, and I love the fact that there is some fresh sort of uh, energy going on. It's not just the usual suspects. It's not just the Astros or the Dodgers or whoever. So I love that there's new blood, and I love the fact that there was young energy to it. The Diamondbacks love watching Corbin Carroll and, and, and some of the young you know, uh, stars that, that are up and coming on that team, and that's kind of the energy that propelled them. Um, the Rangers were a really good story as well. These Both of these teams kind of you know, uh, emerged from having losing seasons prior to this and weren't expected to get this far. So the fact that they did, I thought was great and a lot of fun to watch their whole journey. 
And, you know, I've talked about the Rangers in the past about how they've built their team. Yes, they signed a couple of big name free agents um, in Seeger and Semyon, and yes, they proved to be worth it. And yes, they also signed and or traded for some some good veteran pitchers. You know, but you also have to sort of recognize Evan Carter's contribution, Josh Young's contribution. They've got a good farm and there's more coming where those guys came from. So they are set. I mean, they're really well positioned. And so they were probably a year ahead of schedule based on, you know, what people thought. But I, I think they had a nice management or sort of blend, if you will, of veterans and young and, and young up and comers. And I think they gelled well. Probably both proves Bochi has something to do with that, so give him credit for that. But it was a nice mix. So, um, but I think they're going to be a force to be reckoned with for years to come because of all the young talent they have. Yeah, definitely. And you know, you pe- hear people hemming and hawing about oh, these two like eighty-eight, eighty-nine, ninety-win teams, whatever they were in the World Series. That's bad for baseball. But these were teams that got better as the season went on and are going to continue to get better as some of those young players either make their debuts or continue to grow at the big league level, you know, that the D-backs have a handful of exciting young starters. We saw a couple strong outings from Brandon Fott in the postseason, but he had a disastrous season, so he still has a whole lot of room to grow. Ryan Nelson has a lot of room to grow. They have more names on the far farm, um, Adre Jamison, who just got hurt and could come back. And then on the Rangers side of things, you're right, they have a lot of that same firepower on the farm system that they could either promote to fill some of these holes or trade away to make bigger upgrades and i think it's kind of interesting on their end that they made this magical magical world series run and max scherzer wasn't really a factor in it but jordan montgomery was at the very forefront so the two main trade acquisitions from the deadline one of them caught all the headlines at the time of this massive Max Scherzer deal and they give up this really bright prospect and Mets have to throw in all of this money. And then, oh yeah, they also traded a few lower end prospects for half a year of Jordan Montgomery. And that was really the one that, that did it for him. And Mm -hmm. I don't think we should draw anything too meaningful from that other than the fact that, yeah, there's a reason the Mets had to kick in this money. It's because Scherzer is older and has been banged up the last few years and exactly this outcome was always a possibility that he just kind of wore down as the season went on and and couldn't make an impact down the stretch like i think that's really the only takeaway i want to have from this i'm not going to recommend to teams going forward to pass on the power pitcher longtime number one guy and settle for the kind of ground ball control over strikeouts guy mid rotation arm and say that that's going to be better in October. Cause we know that's not true, but I think this does reiterate what we already knew about Scherzer. And as he gets into his late thirties, early forties here and how his body is holding up. Yeah. And also, you know, they signed Jacob deGrom. That was their big signing in the off season and he got injured. So they won the world series without their biggest uh, acquisition. You know, and they still owe him a ton of money and, you know, for their sake, let's hope he comes back and his sake as well, you know, but they did it without him and Scherzer. So those guys are kind of like, you know, I don't want to say they've been pushed aside, but they didn't really contribute to the World Series, those big names. They did it with all the other guys. So good for them. Right. And you figure next year Scherzer will be back. So that's immediately, hopefully, (laughs) a shot in the arm for them. Um, and then hopefully the following year DeGrom is back and at a hundred percent. And that just goes hand in hand with, as we were saying, the, the next wave of young talent that will join young and Carter, all of the financial resources they have at their disposal, 
the future is bright there. And I, I think they are pretty deserving World Series winners, given the kind of gauntlet they had to go through this postseason of all of those talented teams they took down. Um, but yeah, just wanted to make sure that they got their credit as well as the D-backs, because that was a fun run for them. It was really fun to watch kind of firsthand here in Arizona and watch this community really rally around that team. And hopefully they also make some aggressive moves in the offseason and build on that core that they have and really make a good effort to make it back. Yeah, I'm sure it's fun for you there in Arizona. So, um, But yeah, they've got a very bright future. Definitely. All right. Let's get into some of the actual news here. There's a whole lot to get through. <laughs> We've said it a few times now. Um, let's start with the one trade that we have seen so far. The Tigers acquired first baseman slash outfielder Mark Canna from the Milwaukee Brewers in exchange for minor league reliever Blake Holub. Uh, Holub we did not have in the system and still don't. He's a real fringe back of the prospect list minor league reliever type, so we don't Typically expect them to be worth too much anyway. He might pop up on some prospect lists as we get through this offseason. And if he does, then he'll be added and, and given the appropriate value. But we wouldn't expect it to be too high given there, there typically isn't a whole lot of value in minor league relievers unless they're, you know, top of the line. Like the, the few guys that pop up over that, you know, Emmanuel Classe had some value as a reliever. Guys like that who actually get some prospect type. Um, and, and then on the flip side of this trade, Canna, he has a little bit of surplus value. Um, we have him right around, if I use our new player uh, rankings to pull him up, we have him right at 2.6. So a little bit of surplus over his $11.5 million club option for 2024. Um, but pretty clear that the Brewers are making some changes. They have a lot of tough decisions to make in terms of reallocating not only their playing time, but also their budget and their payroll and how they're going to spend to fill some of the holes on their team. And Canna, who's a solid player, but into his mid to late 30s now and maybe isn't going to be a, a star for anyone, um, they felt that $11.5 million for him in 2024 might be a little bit too rich for them. And so instead of paying the buyout, which I believe was about $2 million, $2.5 million on his contract, instead they'll flip him to the Tigers for an interesting enough relief prospect, and the Tigers get a pretty solid contributor out in a corner outfield spot. Um I like the pickup for the Tigers, considering it's basically free and they don't really have a whole lot going on there anyway. You know, they have a, a good chunk of money coming off the books between Miguel Cabrera's retirement and Eduardo Rodriguez opting out, which we can talk a little bit a bit a little bit more about in a second here. But I think he's a solid addition for them. He's a guy who, you know, maybe they luck into something and he's a part of that. And maybe he just has a solid enough first half and gets traded at the deadline, but either way he's pretty universally regarded as a solid clubhouse guy and he kind of just goes out and, and plays the game so I like this for them and we'll have to see what this means for Milwaukee and and some of their decisions coming down the line uh John what was your reaction to the deal I was a little bit surprised um because you know I think to date we haven't really thought of Milwaukee we've talked a little bit about what are they going to do and in, in a previous episode we talked about yeah maybe they should you know, trade Burns. We know Woodruff is on the shelf with health issues and maybe they're losing Craig Council and maybe it's the year that they say, okay, let's rebuild this thing. And so, but we hadn't really heard anything from Milwaukee to that effect. The fact that they're trading a veteran hitter suggests, hmm, and I get my eyes, eyebrows raised a little bit. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe Mark Hanna is not the, 
the the harbinger of of rebuilds to come but it's uh and, and i know they have a lot of young infielders so maybe i shouldn't overthink it it's probably just about that because they've got a bit of a long drive in the outfield um and you know they probably didn't need him for the full season they traded him for him for him at the deadline obviously thinking okay they're going to the playoffs they could use a veteran bat now they've probably got a a, a different perspective and they want to see what they have in terms of the young guys so i think it makes sense from that point of view i'll i promise i won't read too much into it other than that um i think there may also be a little bit of a money issue because the brewers tend not to be one of the biggest spending teams and to your point they probably didn't want to spend 11 and a half million dollars on mark Hanna, who's a good but not great player um so anyway i i i thought it made sense when i thought about it i was initially surprised like okay what does this mean but i think it's okay um from the tiger standpoint that was a little surprised as well because clearly they're rebuilding and on the on the upswing with some young talent so why do they need one year of an expensive regular um and the answer is i think because they're they need like a veteran i hate this cliche but they need veteran presence they need a guy who can get get on base and i also remembered uh general or front office uh president um scott harris saying when he first took his job that you know he's all about um strike zone control like controlling the strike zone is a big thing with him and mark Hanna is always that's one of his superpowers he he takes his walks he doesn't swing at bad pitches he takes a good at bat you know and they love that and maybe that's a veteran who can show that as an example to the other young guys so i can see it from that point of view as well yeah, he not only takes his walks, but he takes his hit-by-pitches, too. So uh, if Spencer Torkelson I... leads the league in hit-by-pitches next year, you know why. We got um, ice. Yep. Um, you, you said about the Brewers there, you know, you're not going to read too far into it. I'm going to, just for a second here, read way too far into it. And you mentioned Craig Council, who is still a free agent here as a manager and, and by far the most coveted. And you kind of assume once he picks his landing spot, we might kind of see a domino effect for all these other teams that are still looking for a manager. Um, there was a report that came out that council was looking to really set the new standard, you know, raise the bar for managerial salaries. So if you're the Brewers and you want to try and keep Craig Council, would you rather have Mark Canna or Craig Council on your on your payroll? <laughs> and I'm not I'm not suggesting that it's one or the other. I'm not suggesting that council is going to earn 11 and a half million a year because i don't think i don't think even the highest paid manager in today's game is anywhere near that uh, those those salaries aren't as publicly available but i was kind of operating under the assumption it's more in the like three to five million range for the very best of them i think it leaked that um that bob melvin's was somewhere in that range um but just just something to you know if, if council ends up heading back to the brewers you wonder if maybe that's where they saved some of the money for that just uh, just a bit of way too way too rampant way too wild speculation on this one uh, don't don't take it too seriously but just a, a thought that popped into my mind while you were saying that i mean i guess so you you could you could sort of see it that way yeah yeah Let, let's t- circle back to eduardo rodriguez here while we're talking about the tigers um don't need to get too deep into this because we did talk about him pretty extensively uh, around the trade deadline and his decision decision to block the trade to the Dodgers and kind of the, the fact that this pending opt-out was kind of, uh, it was an obstacle to any deal because you had to factor in, okay, what if he doesn't pitch well? What if he gets hurt? Whatever. Then we're stuck with his remaining contract, which would have been three years and 49 million. 
Um, didn't end up being a factor because he didn't get traded for a completely different reason. But now that he has reached the offseason and was still with the Tigers, he went ahead and opted out of that deal. He will be a free agent. It's a fairly strong class for free uh, for starting pitchers on the free agent market. So this isn't a case where he's going to opt out and immediately become one of the most coveted guys. But he will be up there. And there's going to be teams that just can't or choose not to fight in that, you know, Yoshinobu Yamamoto I was going to say Otani or Yamamoto uh, bidding war, but since Otani isn't a pitcher for 2024, he kind of took himself out of that class as well. But there's going to be people who can't play at that higher price range, and a guy like Rodriguez, who's not an ace like Yamamoto could be, but is potentially a solid number two, number three, he could be that kind of piece that they need to really solidify their rotation. Like... We know the Orioles, for example, just pulling a team out of nowhere. Um, we, we know that they're a team that isn't going to be spending the big, big bucks. They've been pretty vocal about that, even though their payroll is so low and they could really afford to at this point. Um, they're, they're just not going to. It's not something that ownership wants to do there. And so you wonder if maybe they can make their quote-unquote splurge on a guy like Rodriguez instead, instead and have him just be that solid, steady presence in the rotation that they really need um any surprise here whatsoever about the opt-out i'm i'm assuming no but any any surprise here um none whatsoever i mean there was if i'm being totally honest there was a little part of me that said okay remember that whole kerfuffle about the trade that didn't happen to the dodgers because he wanted to stay near his family and saying with Detroit meant that he was near his family and now he's not with Detroit. So I go, hmm, maybe he didn't want to stay with Detroit. <laughs> so, but look, uh, that was a very, very minor fleeting thought. It's all about the money. He knows he's underpaid. Um, we've talked about some of the other sort of complicating issues with him because um, he had you know a lot of issues back in uh, 2022 with off-field issues and so on. So I think there's still maybe a little bit of hesitance on some teams' parts um, to give him a massive contract. Um, but if you just look at the pay, the baseball, yeah, he's, he's pitching very well, and he was undervalued from the contract that he had. So just looking at it purely from that standpoint, you know, I'm sure anybody who signs him will talk to him in, de you know, in depth and make sure he's not going to go AWOL again, for example. They don't want to risk that. So I don't – but I don't see him getting huge money because you want to make sure that – you know, he's going to deliver what he promises if you're giving him a contract at all. So, but I think it's going to be higher than what he was getting with Detroit. So let's put it that way. Yeah. And this is a pretty perfect case here to use the new future free agent value timeline on the website. So I went ahead and punched in Eduardo Rodriguez. And if we stick him at three years, just to kind of emulate what he had remaining on the deal that he opted out of, he opted out of three years and 49 million and our model projects him to be worth about 62.7 over those three years so there you go a, a yeah. good 13 14 million more than he was going to be making and plus there's the opportunity for a longer deal yep. obviously so we have for a five-year deal 94 million being fair and honestly that that passes the gut tech like that's what i would have expected for him if yep. you didn't put the numbers in front of me and said hey he's getting a five-year deal where is it going to be i would have said you know somewhere between 80 and 100 million and that's right within that range. So I, I think that's yep. pretty reasonable. Yep. All right, let's move on to our next team. We have a handful of teams that really made a lot of moves here that we can kind of group things up by. Um, the Giants, we talked about this 
a lot on the last episode. Just kind of want to close the loop here. The Giants did end up going ahead and hiring Bob Melvin as their manager. To no one's surprise after that (laughs) leaked that he was going to be interviewing with them and that the Padres were allowing him an interview with them. We talked about that on the last episode that there was really no turning back after that point. So Melvin is in charge with the Giants. And since then, they've had a couple of option decisions come out as well. They've exercised their club option on Alex Cobb, which makes sense. He was very good for them, and it was just a $10 million club option, so kind of a no-brainer there. Ross Stripling exercised his player option with the Giants. Again, a no-brainer. He had a $12.5 million player option and was pretty bad for them last year, so probably wasn't going to beat that on the open market. Makes sense for him to go back, try again, especially... Pitcher-friendly Park can try and turn things around and get himself a better deal next time around. And then the last one that I think is the most interesting of the three is Sean Manaya. So he had an opt-out for $12.5 million for a one... It's it's phrased as an opt-out. It's really a player option as well. Um, $12.5 million player option, and he declined that option, so he will be a free agent. And that's a little bit surprising, at first, um, you know, he, he did not have the strongest season in 2023, but he did play better down the stretch. And perhaps he's hoping to, you know, maybe, maybe he's not going to beat 12 and a half million on a single year deal, but maybe he prefers the longevity and he wants to go get a two or three year deal instead of just being on that one year mark. Maybe he's just going to wait and see how things play out, and he wants a guaranteed starting role, and he didn't have that in San Francisco last year. He pitched a lot out of the bullpen for them after his slow start. So maybe he wants somewhere that can guarantee a starting role, and if he stays with the Giants, he can't really guarantee that off the rip. You know, They might go out and get Otani and Yamamoto and bring back a couple other guys, and all of a sudden the rotation is full, so he wants to play the market there. Um Caught me just a tiny bit off guard, especially since they brought Melvin in and the two of them, you know, Melvin has managed Manaya at every stop in his big league career at this point, And you would assume that they had a good relationship, but at the end of the day, a relationship only goes far and as far as it can. And it's about the dollars and cents. And I think Manaya sees potential for a little more on the open market, as well as, like I said, the, the potential to guarantee himself a starting role. Um, did, did this yeah. catch you off guard at all? At first it did, but then I took a look at our numbers and I saw that in our model we have his fair value at $12.7 million. Um, so him opting out of a $12.5 million guarantee is, you know, questionable, but not unreasonable. You could probably get a little bit more. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people would agree with you. It's like, hmm, that's pretty... Uh, I don't know, <laughs> you know, for 12.5. But actually, yeah, the way we've crunched our numbers is 12.7. So we've been tweeting a lot about these types of decisions and, you know, who it tends to favor, whether it's an opt-out um, on the player's part or an opt-in, you know, a contract being extended or exercised on the team's part. And for the most part, they've been matching very much what our numbers suggest. Um, so if a player is basically getting paid more than he's worth – he's going to opt into that deal because he's not going to get a better deal. If he's getting paid less than what he's worth, then he's probably going to opt out to get paid what he thinks is worth. So that's what's going on here. And so far, it seems like everything is based on our modeling. It seems like everything's going according to plan. So um, people are making rational decisions. That's all I got. Yeah. Do you have anything else on the Giants? I know we talked about them a lot 
last time around, but now that the Melvin decision has been made official and you maybe start to hear more rumblings about their offseason plans and we know that they're going to be a contender for Otani. Um, any new thoughts on them? Anything to look out for from them in the next couple of weeks? You know, um, the fact that they hired Melvin suggests that they're not like rebuilding or throwing in the towel. But the curious thing is how, because they still didn't really ha- get that much out of her, out of their farm. You know, they, it's not like the strongest farm and it's not like the rookies that they brought up had that much impact. So, and, you know, they're losing some veterans. And so, like, they're still kind of a mess. I don't know where they're going or how they're going to get there. Maybe they take the Rangers approach and sign a couple of big name free agents. Maybe they sign Otani and build around that. They do have some financial resources. And, you know, Melvin's a good relationship manager, you know, so he'll, he'll, definitely try to connect with the players he does have but i think it's farhan zaidi's call he's on the hot seat right now and his whole sort of you know way of of building a team has been very sort of value oriented and i think it's another one of those things not unlike heim bloom's stint with the red sox like okay we like your value oriented sort of mindset here but we want to win too so like okay farhan how are we gonna win and i think that's where they're at and then they hired bob melvin who has been a winner and like okay who are the players we're gonna win with and so i think you're gonna see some some noise happening out of san francisco they'll make some signings and or some trades to get them up over that sort of hump to show that they're not just playing value ball they're playing okay now we're gonna try to win ball they kind of have to right after how last off season went and you can even push it back further to Stanton and Harper in previous off seasons, but especially last year with, we got judge. No, we didn't. We got Correa. No, we didn't. Like they, yeah. they can't afford to do that again. Otherwise they're, they're just ostracizing their fan base at a, at a time that they could really grab them, especially with days likely moving out of town. This is their opportunity to really lay claim to the entirety of Northern California there. And it seems like the stars are aligning pretty well for them, but we're going to have to see if they can actually execute here because it really is kind of do or die. You know, there isn't, there isn't a whole lot on the market that really fits that Harper Stanton judge Correa mold other than Otani. So if, if he just doesn't like San Francisco as much as another city, they, we might see them back in the same spot again um, that, that we've grown used to seeing them. All right, let's shift down south to Melvin's former team and talk about what's going on in San Diego. I have a feeling uh, we'll have a lot to say here, both today and throughout this offseason. The Juan Soto trade rumors have already begun. Uh, We've heard some conflicting reports about them. Some said that the Yankees have checked in already. Some said that that happened last deadline. Some saying the Cubs are interested. Um, It's pretty fair to say that most contenders, especially those with a budget, would be interested in a year of Juan Soto if he were to be made available. He's projected to earn $30 million or so in arbitration this upcoming season, uh, if I can pull it up. $33 million, actually, he's projected to earn in his final year of arbitration before he hits the open market. There were some uh, some early reports of his demise that were greatly exaggerated this this past season. He had a cold start to the year, and everyone thought, oh, what a bust. But he really turned it on down the stretch, and he's he's Juan Soto. He's an excellent hitter, maybe not the greatest defender or base runner, but an otherworldly hitter, especially given his age. Um, every team in the league that 
is going to put their money where their mouth is and is actually trying to win is going to be interested in him if he is available on a one-year deal. And the more we learn about the Padres' financial situation, the more possible that seems. So there was also a report that came out that they had to take out a $50 million loan in the second half of last season to fund payroll. And this came after earlier reports that they might be in too much debt. Uh, I forget the exact phrasing. I'm not a financial guy, <laughs> but they, they had a, a specific phrasing of more debt than is usually allowed by MLB, and they might have to scale things back. And this is obviously happening with all of the Bally Sports stuff going on in the background, and they're losing their RSN money, or at least a good chunk of it. And so... This seems more and more likely by the day, but it's still kind of hard to fathom that Peter Seidler was willing to spend all this money, put together a super team of all these superstars. It fails to perform in 2023, and then all of a sudden, let's just trade the biggest guy we got, basically. You know, the, the, the guy who was supposed to be the last piece that put this all together, let's send him out of town to save a few bucks. That seems impossible, but it... It also seems like it might be where we are right now. Um, what is your take on this? Do you think they actually truly entertain a Soto trade this offseason? Or do you think they move other pieces around to get the budget freed up to replace some of these pitchers that they're losing? Or what's the move here for San Diego? So they've definitely signaled that they're cutting budget, right? So they want to get under 200. They were over 250, I think. Um, part of the way they're going to do that is by not re-signing free agents that have gone, like Blake Snell and Josh Hader, for example. So there's some chunk of money saved right there. Um, and you notice they've they've just lost a few pitchers either by their own declines or theirs. They lost uh, Nick Martinez and Michael Waka and Seth Lugo. And so they're down pitchers. Or, you know, they're going to need help. But that's a lot of money coming off the books that was projected to be on the books. And so the next question is, do they go a step further and trade Soto? And there's a lot of rumors about that. There's also, um, you know, there was a report that they at least listened and, you know, rumors about the Yankees and the Cubs, for example. So, um, but I'm not sure I'm buying it yet because, you know, they invested all this money on in players, right? And, and so do they give it one more year? And if they're not in contention in July, they trade Soto at that point? Because, you know, keep in mind they've got Machado and Bogarts and a bunch of other big names. And so, like, do you just give up on that? Now, maybe if you look at the pitching and you think, okay, Darvish has been injured and he's overpaid. And so maybe that's not great. Musgrove is good, but he's also been on the IL a few times. So, like, that's not – so maybe you have very little pitching that you can count on and maybe say, you know what, let's just bag it. So I think there's a bigger decision here is what I'm trying to say. There's a bigger decision on what are we doing? Are we going for it or are we not? And I know there's also pressure from the other owners because Peter Seidler is not the only owner. There's a bunch of other ones. He's the, the majority owner, but uh, or rather the, the, the one who's uh, – I forget what they call him, but the one who's been given sort of control. Uh, but he has also been not well health-wise. So there's also sort of people, other people stepping up and say, what are we doing here? So they've got to figure out that whole question. What are we doing here? If we're going for it or not. If they're going for it, they're keeping Soto. If they're not going for it, they're not. Uh, so they haven't made the decision yet. And Preller has been oddly quiet. So I haven't seen him make any moves yet other than the ones that have been in the contract options that have been announced. So I'm not sure what to read into it other than, you know, let's just see what happens. Yeah, and I think important context here is 
what are we talking about with Juan Soto? And this is going to be a rehash of a lot of what we said about Shohei Otani last year around this time and, and heading into the season. A year of Juan Soto can only be worth so much. He, as we said, he's expected to earn $33 million in arbitration, which is even more than Otani was making last year. Obviously, the big difference here is that Otani pitches and hits, and Soto only hits, so that's going to cut his value compared to Otani's. And even so, we still have him at $22.9 million in surplus on top of that $33 million salary, which is a really high amount, all things considered. That's, that's right. a lot of value given everything that's working against Soto. But at the same time, it's not going to get you that absolute blue chip top five prospect in baseball like some people might speculate. It's It's going to hurt you a little bit especially considering that it's just a year of the guy and considering what it's going to do to your payroll like trading for soto is still going to hurt more than you'd like it to i think but it's not going to break the bank and you wonder if there are teams who normally wouldn't be in contention here and we talked about this a little bit with otani as well of like could the rays make a push here could the diamondbacks like these teams that can't traditionally commit 10 years, $400 million to a player of that caliber. But if suddenly they're available for a year, they can move things around and make a year of this fit in the budget or at the at the trade deadline, a third of a year of that salary, they can make that fit in the budget, things like that. And so on the, on the buyer's side, there's that consideration, but then there's also that consideration on the seller's side. You know, if you're the Padres, and you're doing this primarily to get out from the cash, they're probably not going to cover much of it, if any, then your return isn't going to be earth-shattering. You know, you're not going to go get an ace in exchange for Soto. You might get a controllable young arm with a little bit of upside. You know, I think Tanner Houck of the Red Sox, I'm not, I'm not suggesting this as a possible trade, but I've seen it suggested, and he's in a similar value range there at 19 and a half. That's a name that could make sense as like a stand-in in a return. Like that's the kind of guy you're looking at. You're not looking at a surefire ace. You're either looking at a similarly expensive player, which at that point, why are you doing this? Or taking a kind of rolling the dice on a younger guy like that. Or you just go all in on prospects and, and call it a real rebuild. I guess that's a third option, but one that probably seems the least likely of the bunch given their other financial uh, commitments that they have. So just kind of a, a reminder to, to everyone involved and everyone, you know, speculating that it is just a year of the guy as good as he is. It's a, it's one expensive season of team control. It can only be worth so much. If you agreed at all with our Otani valuation, then this should make all the sense in the world because as good as he is, he's only half of Otani. <laughs> you know, he, he can't yeah. pitch. If he could pitch, we'd be talking a, a lot differently here. Yeah. He's a bad fielder as well. <laughs> so he's not going to add much value there. He's sort of fumbles around there in left field and does the best he can, but he's really just a, you know, a hitter and he's a great hitter. Don't get me wrong. Um, great eye, great power, all that. So, um, so you're getting a great hitter. Um, but we're effectively saying one year of Otani is worth about $55 million, which is ridiculous because no one's ever paid that much for a position player ever, you know? Um, so, um, the Mets have played, paid $43 million for a pitcher, but no one's ever paid 55 million. I'm not saying that 
you know, that's what would happen. But I'm just giving you perspective that that's already the highest, you know, you can see AAV, if you will, when you combine the salary he's making and the surplus value on top of that. So you're not getting any more than I think what our values are showing. I'd be very surprised um, if you did. Um, you know, a lot of people think, okay, well, let's trade for him and sign him to a long-term contract. Keep in mind also that he's going to be very expensive uh, on a long-term contract. And you can, you can, if you're a premium member, a GM level access, you can see what he'd be making um, over the course of 10 years or 12 years. So, um, so you're not going to get any surplus value there because you're going to pay through the nose for it. So now, if you're look, if you're a fan, you say, "Of course, it's not my money. I just want to win the team." Well, if you're a GM, you are spending your owner's money, so you have to be conscious of that. That's why he's not going to get much more than that in trade. So, um, so yeah, um, there's still a big question of is he going to get traded or not. If he is, it's going to be a very limited um, uh, group of teams who would be willing and able to pay for him, both in, in trade capital and salary. Um, now, some people are even speculating that maybe if the Padres really want to save some money, they can also attach a bad contract to it. So maybe they attach Cronenworth, for example, who's already underwater, who they've made the mistake of extending, and, and get even less of a return back because they want to just you know get rid of some money. Who knows? Again, we don't know what San Diego is thinking yet. So until we do, it's all speculation. I plugged Juan Soto's name into the new value matter tool, and I found what would arguably be the funniest trade in Major League history. Um, okay. Juan Soto's at 22.9 in surplus. A certain left-handed pitcher for the Washington Nationals by the name of Mackenzie Gore is at 22 million <laughs> in surplus. There you go! <laughs> Bring the band back together. Don't don't worry about how the Nationals would have no use for Soto right now. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um but yes, all, all good points on your end. Um, last thing I think about the Padres, you touched on this earlier, uh, but they lost most of their rotation in the last few days. They lost Seth Lugo, who declined his $7.5 million player option, which makes a lot of sense. He was very solid for them in his first full season as a starting pitcher, so he's expected to earn more than $7.5 million as a free agent. Um, they had an interesting option set up with both Michael Waka and um, and uh, Nick Martinez, both of them. And I think we talked about this at the time. They had these interesting scenarios where after the first year of their deal, they had both uh, first, first a club option for the following two seasons that the Padres would have the opportunity to exercise at 16 million a year. And then following that option, the if that was declined then the player would have consecutive player options worth eight million each i believe these were okay waka's is six and a half and martinez's were eight million dollars each and so for martinez what's interesting is both ends declined their their side of the deal so the padres said no we don't want to pay you 16 million dollars each of the next two seasons which makes a lot of sense but then nick martinez also said no i want I, I think I can make more than $8 million each of the next two years, which I think is a fairly reasonable assumption. And that's that's about where I'd put them. You know, something like a 220, 224, something in that range would make sense. And it would it would follow the logic of those option decisions. And then I don't think we've gotten a, an answer on Michael Waka yet. I think the Padres, the, the latest I'm seeing is that the Padres declined their side of the club option. Again, makes sense. Waka's not a $16 million a year pitcher. But... 
I don't think we've heard yet on Waka's um, player option decision, but I'm trying to find out exactly what that looks like because it looks like the structure on this one's a little bit different. Um, but I, I think it's likely to expect him to be gone as well, testing the open market, trying to get a better guarantee for himself. And even if he's not, if he's not testing the open water, then that tells you something as well. That tells you that he doesn't think he could beat that on the open market. And that tells you that he's probably underwater as well. And it's just another, you know, underwater contract for the Padres to try and get themselves out from under another item kind of working against them as they try and dig themselves out of this. So that's where they are right now. As you mentioned, they have you Darvish and Joe Musgrove, which on paper, that's a solid start to a rotation, but given their health concerns and Darvish isn't getting any younger, that's, it's, it's a little scary, especially when you have pretty much nothing backing the two of them up. They have their work cut out for them this, this off season. That's for sure. You know, there's a little bit of a, uh oh moment you could say here like they spent like drunken sailors there for a while aj preller just went nuts with bogarts and machado extension and peter seidler was like yeah throw money throw money and they didn't have the money and now they're borrowing money just to make payroll and they lost their rsn their regional sports network so there's a revenue source there that's not happening anymore but so now they there feels like there's sort of this is the hangover like oh my god we spent how much money and we're in debt now yikes and so eh, it's not looking good in fairness to preller at least this really has turned out to be pretty close to the worst case scenario yeah you know they spend all that money miss the playoffs and lose bally sports which i don't think anybody really saw coming and Oh, by the way, you know, your owner who approved all of those deals, he actually didn't have that money. And now you're going to need to scale back. Like, I, I don't, I obviously don't know what happened in that front office. I don't know what the relationship is between Preller and Seidler. But I think if they knew that this was a possibility that they'd be at this point, come the start of the 2023 offseason, I think they would have handled that last offseason much, much differently. And, you know, rather than pushing... Rather than $250 million payroll in 2023 and, whoops, we got to get it under $200 million for 2024, there's a world in which they have a steadier $220 to $225 million pay payroll both years, and things just work out a lot cleaner for them. And, and obviously, they still probably don't make the playoffs last year if you're saying they have fewer of these good expensive players, but maybe they're in a better spot heading into this offseason. Hmm. That's the glass half full <laughs> yeah, view. I'm not so sure I'm there. Right. Well, we will see what they do. Um, let's flip to the other side of the country to a team that only knows the correct way to spend money, it seems. They, they can't – this team cannot make a bad signing, at least not yet. Um, the Braves, they've extended Pierce Johnson two-year $14.25 million, and they've also re-signed Joe Jimenez three years $26 million. Um, Jimenez was acquired from the Tigers uh, prior to the 2023 season. Uh, he was a pending free agent, and they liked what he did for them in 2023 and decided to keep him on board. And Pierce Johnson was acquired from the Colorado Rockies at the deadline last year. And again, he, he had a pretty unsightly ERA at the time. They brought him in. He showed showed the, the Braves what he could do. He was pretty solid for them down the stretch. Um, 
this was a guy who it really just seemed like he wasn't a good fit for Colorado in the thin air and, and he had good stuff, good individual pitches and just needed a place to put that together. And Atlanta's that place. And now he's locked up as well. Um, the one interesting bit on both of these deals is our model thinks that they're both overpays. And we've seen this generally speaking in previous off seasons where there's been some overpays early for relievers, you know, thinking back to, Rafael Montero comes to mind with the Astros last year. They did something similar. Um, mm -hmm. But also with, with the Braves, they have been known to overpay for relievers themselves. And sometimes it works out for them anyway, but other times it doesn't. Um, so Pierce Johnson, we have at negative 3.3 after this deal. And Joe Jimenez, we have all the way down at negative six. So this is nothing, you know, this isn't going <laughs> to break their organization. You know they're they're still ranking quite well on the the team rankings page on the new site based thanks to all of those favorable early career extensions they've gotten they still have a ton of surplus baked up in those this isn't really killing them or anything and all it takes is these guys are a half a win better than their projections in in year one and whoops now it's a positive surplus because that's how things work over time but um interesting to note at least that both for both to note for this franchise and their trends, and then also for what we've seen the last few off seasons with those trends that these come across as slight overpays for those two guys. Yeah, two thoughts here. One is, yes, we have seen that trend where at the very beginning of the off season, there's a few relievers that are locked up. You think, hmm, really? Is he worth that much? Like Montero, we talked about. Um, and so Jimenez is, you know, he had a few down years in Detroit that were just awful. And then he had a bounce back here. And then um, with the Braves, he was, you know, good-ish, not great based on his numbers. Um, so, you know, there's there's uncertainty there. He's not the most reliable case. Maybe they think they've unlocked something that is more reliable with him. If so, then he's probably going to be worth it in time. At this point of time, though, we're still looking back at his career and saying, yeah, he's had some ups and downs. So I hope, you know, cross your fingers. Um, and with Pierce Johnson, I think it's just a matter of like, yeah, he's just sort of a yeah, okay middle reliever. And, you know, he's pretty close to what he's getting paid. Um, but yes, the second point is the Braves don't seem to be afraid of overpaying for relievers. They've done it with Will Smith and... Mark, I think it was Mark Melanson in a trade a couple of years ago, and you know, um, uh, and uh, Rizal Iglesias. They, they, there. It's like they're saying, okay, we've created enough value. To your point, uh, surplus value across our roster of mostly position players. We've locked up a bunch of young guys, so we can afford to spend a couple extra bucks on relievers if we like them. I think that's all it is. And I think I could talk myself into Pierce Johnson here. Um, when you look at how his career has gone, he was a really solid reliever for the Padres for a couple of years there. 2022 was a step back, but it was only in 15 games, 14 in the third innings. Like his strikeout rate was up where it was. He just walked a few more guys than normal and high BABIP. Like I'm, I'm fine tossing that out. It's just a weird year. And then last year he starts the year with Colorado again, high strikeouts, but all of a sudden for the first time in his career, he has a home run problem and that plus some walks and plus some bad, it just seems like a guy who did not gel with Coors Field. And then he goes to Atlanta and look at that. He has a 0.76 ERA down the stretch and his walks are down and his home runs are down and his BABIP is down and everything is, is going right for him since, since joining the Braves. And so 
I could see an argument there that, you know, I, I still don't think he's a late inning guy by any means, but he's not getting paid late inning money here. He's getting very middle relievery money, seven million ish a year, um, with a club option for twenty twenty six, it looks like. And I think that's totally fair, especially like you said, if if they think that they did fix him and maybe it's more than just getting him out of cores, maybe it's getting him out of cores plus throw more curveballs or whatever it is. Um, I think it's totally reasonable um, on that one. Uh, scratch my head a little bit on giving Joe Jimenez a third year, given what you mm-hmm. were saying about some of his uncertainty, some of his ups and downs. But hey, the generally speaking, the Braves know more than you and I. I think they've, <laughs> I think they've proven themselves time and time again. Um, and you know, I think you know they're they're pound wise and penny foolish. I will coin, coin a phrase: they're pound wise and that they make the right calls on the big contracts locking up a lot of young guys on extensions with a lot of surplus value a lot of team friendly contracts so in that sense they are pound wise and they might be a little penny foolish they got a little house money to play with with relievers so they might overpay a little bit i think that's what's going on yeah and i think that's pretty fair all right let's stick in the division let's talk about the marlins um First off, let's say that they got their Kim Ng replacement. They hired Rays general manager Peter Bendix as their new president of baseball operations. Um, reportedly, Bloom was of interest to Miami, but took himself out of the race there. But Bendix was still one of their top options, and good for them. I mean, this is just another, another in a long line of uh, general managers or presidents of baseball ops or chief baseball operator or whatever they're called. Um, that come from the Tampa Bay Rays organization. And despite this, the Rays are still churning along just fine. And it seems like they're just, in in this weird way, they're a front office farm team for the rest of the league. And they have something figured out. They're great at identifying these guys and getting them to the point where they can lead a front office. And then they just kind of have to let these guys leave for greener pastures so they can get the opportunities to move forward in their careers. Um, but I think this is exactly the kind of guy the Marlins wanted is more analytics heavy. We heard about some of the discourse between Kim Ng and owner Bruce Sherman about Sherman wanting to point more toward analytics and Ng not necessarily being traditional, but a little bit more scouting focused. And that seems, I don't want to read too much into this here. I don't know a thing <laughs> about Peter Bendix, but coming from the Rays, I think you can make some safe assumptions there about his thoughts on analytics and, and how he's going to utilize them in this new role. Um, but yeah, did, did you have any other thoughts on this move? Was Bendix a name you had on your radar at all? Um, not that I followed it that closely, but I'm not surprised at all because it seems like the Marlins owner is very much, you know, uh, cost conscious. And so he's yet another one of these owners that likes a good bang for your buck kind of uh, president of baseball operations who will, do what the Rays do and create winning teams on low budgets because that's kind of what his orders are. Okay, create me a winning team on a low budget. Okay, I can do that, says Peter Bendix, because um, I've done it before in Tampa. And, um, yeah, and, you know, Tampa continues to, you know, uh, sprout future GMs and Pobos out of their tree because that's what they do. They are a value factory. They, they draft well, they develop well, which gives them a lot of, you know... Um, 
surplus value to play around with and build winning teams from and then trade from that surplus value to get veterans and whatnot and don't cost a whole lot of money doing it. So that's what that owner in Miami wants. And that's what he's getting Peter Bendix. And I'm sure um, he likes that. And I think it's a good move for Bendix too, because, you know, he's been under, he's been kind of in the shadow of Eric Niehander has been running that show for a while in Tampa. So it's a, it's kind of a good opportunity kind of him, for him to kind of step out and show what he can do on his own as a number one guy. So I still feel bad for Kim Ng, but I think this is a good move for everybody. Right. It's It seems like we're reaching this point of, we have a few kind of celebrity, I guess you could call them, front office individuals between Kim Ng, Heim Bloom, um, James Quick, right? I'm not mixing him up. He's the one who was with the Astros. Who do I always Yes, he won a World Series with the Astros, and then he got fired. Yes, James Quick. Great. I'm (laughs) glad I got the right name there. Um, But those three in particular, they are so decorated and supposedly highly regarded in the industry, and they don't really have the jobs that would reflect that. And I know it's still way early on for Ng and Bloom, and maybe we'll see movement with all of them this offseason, maybe Inger Bloom just want to take a year for personal mm-hmm. reasons, whatever, but seems seems a bit, I don't know, a bit interesting to me. I wonder if there's any reason to that or if it's just a, a weird coincidence that those three are all still floating around out there. I, I think it's more like in, in Bloom's case, he's still getting paid his full salary from Boston. So he doesn't, it's not like he has to have a job right now, right? So he can regroup. And sometimes when you get fired, you need a little time to regroup. So that's not surprising to me. I saw some rumor that he might be interested in a Cardinals opportunity as an advisor. So maybe he'll do that while he's regrouping. Um, not sure about Kim Ng, but I think she's got some money left on her on the table. So she might. I'm sure she's fine. Um, so and then I'm, I've lost track of what's happening with James Click, but um, you know they all. I believe money. he <laughs> spent the year with the Do- uh, not the Dodgers, with the Blue Jays in okay, an advisory yeah. capacity. Yeah. I think that sounds familiar to me, and I think I I kind of came into this off season with the expectation of okay, he's he's going somewhere, and we haven't really heard his name come up too much. Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, one of the um, don't read too much into this, but you know, he didn't get along that well with the owner Jim Crane of the Astros, and so I wonder if owners are like, hmm, does he? Does he manage up okay? You know, because I need a good relationship with. I'm going to hire this guy. So maybe there's a little tint of that going on in his case. I don't want to speculate, but there was that issue when when all that happened. So who knows? Yeah, interesting. We'll we'll see. Um, moving back onto the field for the Marlins, um, Jorge Soler, outfielder slash primarily DH, uh, has declined his $13 million player option for next season. He had a little bit of surplus there, so it makes sense. Um, he had a pretty solid year, 36 home runs, slug 512. He's, he's a very frustratingly inconsistent player where he's either like a guy you're really happy to have as your DH or he's doing nothing at all for you. And it seems like he bounces back and forth between the two at a whim. It's really fascinating, but he'll hit the open market at a decent time considering the lack of bats on the free agent market. And he, despite his inconsistency would be one of the better ones, albeit limited in position as, as a primary DH. So he will not be returning at least as of this point to the Marlins Um, on the flip side, Josh Bell has exercised his player option, which was really a no brainer. Um, 
Bell came over in a deadline trade with the Guardians that you and I both thought was very strange, where they traded Gene Segura and his contracts, plus a prospect in Khalil Watson to acquire Josh Bell and his contract, which we thought was a worse contract than Segura's. Um, lucky for Josh Bell, he was pretty good for them down the stretch, but even so, we have him pretty underwater here. Um, we have... Uh, since he has opted into his second year of the deal at $16.5 million, we expect him to be worth $7.9 million in field value next year. So we have him almost $9 million underwater here. And that makes sense because when you look at his season last year, once he joined the Marlins, he was pretty good. But that's pretty good as a DH only slash bad defensive first baseman pretty good doesn't get you a lot of money it, he had a 119 wrc plus down the stretch for the marlins which is okay but not 16 and a half million dollars a year type money and that's before we even get into the 96 wrc plus he had in the first half of the year or the 80 wrc plus he had in the second half of 2022 with the padres and and so he's also just an inconsistent player where it seems like he'll have one or two months a year where he's just on fire and outside of that it's pretty frustrating production and so a no-brainer for him to to exercise his option here it still remains a bit of a head scratcher of a trade that the marlins made to acquire him and i guess we'll just have to see how he performs in his first full year with the team next year and if he can if i think if he keeps that 119 wrc plus level production somewhere in that range if he keeps that going they'll be fine with it considering they're upgrading over another sunken contract in Gene Segura with that. But if it's any lower, I think you're you're into some less fortunate territory there. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Okay. So it's clear that he opted into his contract because he's not worth $16.5 million. So we were right about that. Um, and so, yes, he, we think he's worth pretty close to $8 million a year. Um, why? Because he's so inconsistent. He was one of the worst hitters in baseball in the first half of the year. And the Guardians fans will tell you, like, oh, my God, that was a terrible signing. So they were happy to get rid of him at the deadline in a bad contract swap. And then, sure enough, when they got Segura back, they just cut him. So they just ate money, basically. So he's not – and then he – yeah, the fact that he will go on a hot streak, and as he did with Miami after the change of scenery – you know, that's he's done that before in the past, but then he cools off again and he's terrible. He's also a terrible defensive first baseman. So all things considered, you have to look at the full season. You can't just look at the hot streak with Miami. You have to look at the full season, especially if he's coming into a full season now that he's not um, a fresh face anymore. He's still there. So he's going to settle in a bit. And he's probably going to go back to his usual tendencies of ups, ups and downs and bad defense. So, um yeah, so he opted into more money than he would get if he had been a free agent. It's as simple as that. Yeah, and then the other two quick moves by the Marlins, they did decline options on Johnny Cueto and Matt Barnes. Those were both no-brainers. Those two did not yep. pitch well for them, and Cueto had a $10.5 million option, Barnes at $9 million. Um, Yeah, no real question on those two, I don't think. All right, let's... Uh, Let's see if I can make this transition work. Let's go to the team that the Marlins narrowly beat out in that wild card race, the Chicago Cubs. Uh, I think that was smooth enough of a transition. Uh, Marcus Stroman has opted out of his deal. He was a big one 
that a lot of people were talking about at the deadline, and it was kind of a similar vein to Eduardo Rodriguez with the wrinkle being that the Cubs put themselves back in contention right before the deadline. So he ended up staying put. He was seen as kind of a fringe goes either way type for whether he was going to opt in or opt out. And it looks like he will go ahead and opt out and hit the open market. It, it makes it makes enough sense based on our modeling. That is what we would have expected him to do. He does have a little bit of surplus that he isn't picking up. And I'm trying to pull this up right now. I'm stalling if you can't tell. Um, all right, we have him at $25 million in field value next year. And he was set to make... I believe it was 21 million um, if he had remained on his contract. So there's a bit of a gap there. And it's That's a correct. similar case where yep. even, you know, even if he opts for, you know, another three-year deal or something like that, he might just prefer the security, even if it is at a slightly lower or similar AAV to what he had on the table with the Cubs. Um, so he's at least going to test the market. It seems like he likes Chicago. There's always the possibility he goes right back there. Um, but he is kind of, like I said, in that in that range of Eduardo Rodriguez, he's an interesting enough kind of mid-rotation option for these teams that can't afford to be fighting at the top of the market. Um, any surprise here with Stroman, or does it all just make sense? It's the know, math. Crunching the numbers. Yeah, it's the math. I mean, he performed well enough in his sort of walk here to say yeah he's worth more than 21 he's worth 25 according to our model so we're not surprised and that's just for one year he's likely to get more than one year of course so if you can spread that out a little bit as we can you can if you were a subscriber you can go to our estimate our side estimate and see what he would get over multiple years which he's likely to do so of course why not take this opportunity coming off a good year that's when you want to be on the market right so he's going to get pretty close to what he's or if not, what he paid for. In addition to which, the there's always a supply and demand issue for good starting pitchers. So somebody may even overpay for him because there's just not that many of them on the market. So even though he's not like a true number one ace type of guy, he's a solid three, maybe two. So yeah, there will be high demand for him. So he'll get he'll get what he's worth. And on the flip side, the Cubs are keeping Kyle Hendricks. They exercised a $16.5 million club option. And when I saw this come through, I was pretty surprised. I thought, like, nah, no way. That, that just must be, you know, they're being too loyal to their guy or whatever. But I realized I had not seen how solid of a year Kyle Hendricks had in 2023. It went pretty under the radar. And to the point that, yeah, this was a good decision. You know, he had according to our model, 1.8 in surplus on top of that 16.5. So it made sense for them to execute that option, you know, especially given the context of potentially losing Stroman. Um, yeah, th this one, yeah. like I said, it definitely caught me off guard. I, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't rechecked Hendricks after his struggles in 2021 and 2022, but he bounced back. He was, by fan graphs, almost a three-win pitcher. Good for him. Exactly. Sometimes we get it in our heads and it's fixated there like, oh, yeah, he's underwater, he's underwater, he's underwater. And then he has a bounce back season. And then I was keeping an eye on it during the course of the season. Like, oh, he's figuring it out. Oh, he's figuring it out. And sure enough, he started climbing back up to like fair value to the point where now he's got a little bit of surplus to now to the point where he's worth 18 and not 16.5. So, of course, the Cubs want him back. He's figured it out. So good for him. Yeah, and in that same bit of news, they did also exercise their club option on Jan Gomes, which 
also immediate reaction was really are they sure about that one and, and this one my gut was actually right <laughs> yeah he's a um, little underwater yeah they they executed their seven million dollar club option on him uh we have his field value at 5.1 so that puts him at negative 1.9 in surplus um that's it's it's again not like it's kind of along those same lines as the braves deals if they like the guy then a couple million dollars in surplus isn't worth haggling over especially a guy like gomes who has gotten good reviews for how he handles a pitching staff and that's the kind of thing that we can't exactly quantify in the model um but it, it clearly does provide some level of value there and it's something that the team would care about and decide to hey maybe we can look past this two million even even you know assuming that their their model looks the same as ours in the first place but saying you know maybe we're overpaying him a bit but our pitchers like him let's keep him on board no yeah. reason to clown around losing him to the open market for no reason the overpay here is so minor that it's not even barely worth talking about but i mean you know if you look at the numbers he was a one war catcher he's 35 years old a little bit below average hitter but not terribly so with a 95 diversity plus he's fine and if you look at the overall sort of catching market it's pathetic it's really terrible there's not that many there's no there's hardly any good ones out there right which is why the braves traded for sean murphy last year and locked him up so they're you know what do you, what are your other options so you might as well okay here's another million Jan gomes <laughs> fine <laughs> so i have no no more to say on that yeah one guy i think we will have more to say on is Cody Ballinger. He's been a fun story for many different reasons. Um, he officially declined his end of the mutual option he had with the Cubs, which makes a lot of sense given his bounce back year. That mutual option was actually for $25 million, um, and he receives a $5 million buyout for declining it. So it's a, it comes out to a $20 million decision. Um, and I don't know if we quite have the time to get super deep into bellinger right now but he is going to be a pretty fascinating free agent case given the ups and downs of his career and at least at, at the last point i checked when we were discussing bellinger at the trade deadline as a possible trade candidate um he really did not have support to those numbers when it comes to like the baseball savant metrics the Statcast metrics, expected statistics, they didn't like him nearly as much as his surface numbers did. Just glancing at his Fangraphs page, he's at a, he had a 370 WOBA last year, which was fantastic, and his ex-WOBA was down at 331, which is just more of good. Um, and so there's a lot to like about him. You know, he has the power speed, he's an okay defender in the outfield, he cut his strikeout rate by 12 points, but I think there's enough to give teams pause that He's going to be a really interesting free agent. I don't think he's necessarily this slam dunk of every team's going to be clamoring for him. I think a lot of teams are going to have some reservations here. And maybe that just puts him into a price point where the Cubs bring him back. And, you know, they can get what they perceive to be a discount for a guy who clearly likes hitting in, in Wrigley. And, and maybe it's good all around. But I think he's a guy I really have my eye on this offseason as like a really interesting test case here. Yeah, agreed. And this is a perfect sort of example of how our new site um, works with um, seeing what the differences are between the number of years. So Cody Bellinger, he had a couple of down years and then he had a bounce back year, right? So there's still that little sense of uncertainty of like, okay, do you really want to give him a massive contract? Because what if he reverts back to those down years? Then you're, oh my gosh, then you're really out of luck. So 
So we have one year of Cody Bellinger at 27.2 million, which, okay, one year, no risk, fine. 127 feels right. But as you start to get into the numbers, two years, 52, so 26 million. So the, the risk starts to go up and the AV starts to go down accordingly. Three years, 73, about 24.5 million. Let's skip to five years, 112 million. So five years for Cody Bellinger, then you start to have some real doubts in your head. So that's why you sort of compensate for, okay, you're going to give him a little less money. So that's a $22.5 million AV and so on. Like if you, like, let's say you really wanted to give him a long-term contract and you gave him a, a 10-year contract. Now you've got a lot of risk there. So his AV is going down to 18. Still like pretty close to what he was making. I think he was making 18 this year. Um, 10 years, 181 million. 12 years, 190 million. Now you're down to 15.9 because you're taking on a whole bunch of risk and a whole bunch of later years when he's old and uh, and not doing well into 2036. And you can see the surplus is going to go way down. So my point is, he's an interesting case to kind of use, to kind of play around with and toggle with the years. If you're a, a GM level subscriber, you can do this on like what the differences are between how much risk you're taking and therefore how much value you have in that player. And I think he's also a guy that's going to have larger error bars on his numbers than most. I think there is potential for a team here to just say, screw it, we're going to buy in, we think he's back, and we'll blow other teams out of the water. It, what kind of comes to mind is what the Tigers did with Javier Baez, where it seemed like they were bidding against themselves <laughs> with how much money they gave him oh and my the model. God. Yeah, but look. Yeah. <laughs> terrible deal. Yep. And the model certainly didn't agree with it at the time, and for very good reason. It was bad from day one, and it has not gotten better, uh, even a little bit. I could absolutely see a team doing something similar with Bellinger. Not that I think Bellinger is quite as bad of a player or as risky of a player as Baez, but there is a lot of risk here, as as you're saying. And especially when you talk about he's not going to hit the market looking for a three-year deal, right? He's going to tell teams, I just hit 307. I just cut my strikeout rate almost in half. I still hit 26 homers. I'm... A superstar there's no other hitters give me a seven eight year deal like that's going to be his pitch i don't know if he's a scott boris guy but if he is that's scott boris's pitch um the, the you know you can you can pitch whatever you want and you need a team to meet you halfway or meet you all the way for you to get a deal done um but that's at least how he's going to be holding himself he's not going into this offseason looking for a three-year deal so i could see him being a type where he's sitting on the market for a while waiting for either someone to get desperate or waiting for himself to kind of lower his expectations and take what looks like a more reasonable deal. Yeah. I mean, he's still only 27. I mean, you know, he came on the, on strong when he was younger, right? He had a 7.8 war year with LA when he was 23 years old, when he won the MVP. Um, but he hasn't been the same since. He hasn't come close to that since. And he had those down years in between. So three down years altogether. Um, so, like, is one year of bounce back, a 4.1 F4, going to really guarantee him a big super deal contract? I don't know if that's enough. I think there's still some doubt, which is why we, we f factored that into our model and said, okay, yeah, <laughs> you'll make some money, but not that much because of that uncertainty again. Right. And, and so there that kind of goes back to the error bars, right? Of like, there's error bars on the negative side, but when you look at him being 27, if he is fixed, then there's kind of an opportunity for a bargain here. 
if if this is now who he is. I don't think it is. I think you have to assess the risk properly. But I could see a team talking themselves into that and saying, like, even if he isn't quite where he was in 2023, you know, even if he's not a four-win guy, even if he's a three-and-a-half-win guy, well, starting out in year in his age 28 season in year one, that already has him back to a better spot than a lot of free agents in this in this situation. He's a lot earlier on that aging curve than a lot of guys will be. So I don't know. I think there's, I'm certainly not necessarily pro Bellinger. I think he's a very dangerous, a very risky player to be investing highly into, but I could certainly see some teams talking themselves into it and and getting kind of a bidding war going here. I mean, yeah. I mean, after Otani, uh, there's kind of a drop off a little bit into like really impact players. And so some teams could see him as an impact player and they very, you know, the best of Cody Bellinger. Yeah, that's an impact player. So it's just a question of, is he going to be consistently at that level? And maybe some team takes that risk. We'll see. Yeah. Okay. Moving to the Red Sox. Uh, they have officially hired Craig, Be- Craig Breslow as their chief baseball officer. Uh, we talked about them in the last episode, and this was one of the names we listed off as, folks who were still in the running for that job. It seemed like half of the candidates in baseball had already turned it down. Um, Seems like a decent enough move still. Breslow is an Ivy League guy, I'm pretty sure. And and he's been mentioned in the same sentence as, you know, the Sam Fold, Chris Young, um, these former players that are really bright in the next future front office stars. Uh, He's been mentioned in that same vein for a long time. And so not a huge surprise here. Um, I don't know if there's a whole lot to unpack here that we haven't already said about some of the obstacles, some of the blemishes on the Red Sox job here with Tom, uh, with uh, Alex Cora, with John Henry, with the dynamic at play there, with some of the salary that they have on the books, with the high level of expectations in Boston. Um, a lot makes this a complicated job, a lot more than just, yes, it's a big money team. I want to go with all these young, exciting players, I want to go run that team and, and can't wait. It's the most attractive job in the league. That's that's not quite how this one was looking for all of those reasons. And that's why they didn't necessarily get their first or second choice, I don't think. But Breslow, like I said, he's a guy who's been highly regarded for a while now. So I don't think anybody is too, too disappointed with that one. There's always the risk of this is his first real job at this level. But... Hey, half of those guys, you know, you, you got to start somewhere, right? Even even the best GMs and presidents of baseball ops and whoever in baseball, they had to start at some point. And, you know, maybe this is the start of a long career for Breslow in the front office running running teams successfully. We'll just have to wait and see. It kind of reminds me of one of those trades where a team overpays for a prospect that has some helium. You know, and you're like, oh, at the moment today, on today's date, he's not quite there yet. But yeah, I can see he's going to blossom into you know a star later. They're they're overpaying for talent basically at a little bit of a re- of a reach. And I think this was a little bit of a reach, but the, but I think it's a, he's also very talented. So I think it's going to work out fine in the end. But it's a big jump from a guy who was an assistant GM all the way past the GM level, all the way up to the top level of president of baseball operations. So he jumped two spots basically. And so for that reason, it's a, it's a reach. Um, his basic job, his job was developing pitching and he did a good job of that at, at, in Chicago. And it makes sense because he used to be a pitcher. 
Um, the fact that he has ties to the area and he used to be a Red Sox pitcher certainly helped, I would imagine. Um, and the fact that he's super smart um, and has been kind of, you know, groomed by Jed Hoyer, who's very well respected. It seems like he's got all the all the qualifications, just not the experience. And so the question is, is he going to be able to now do the full job, the full extent of a president of baseball operations job, not just overseeing the pitching development, but making trades and signings and, you know, developing the pitching, you know, everything, looking after everything. And he's got to develop the whole sustainable thing. Now, good news is Heim Bloom left the farm in pretty good shape. So he's taking over that. Um, but the other thing is the reason Heimblum was fired is because the, the the owners felt like he didn't have the nerve to pull the trigger on some really big moves or didn't quite convince players to, to come to Boston and be, you know, there's that winning aspect. So you're always balancing sort of managing the asset value with the winning. And so they're hoping that Breslow has that in his DNA. We don't know yet. We will see. I like the move. I think it's a little bit of a reach, but we'll see. Yeah, uh, for going back to your, you know, trading for a helium prospect analogy for every Fernando Tatis Jr., where you, you trade for the guy on the upswing and it, he continues to go up and it works out for you. There's a dozen Hudson heads where it, it, it doesn't quite go as well and he's still scuffling around in high A and hasn't put it together yeah, for the Pirates. Right. Um, Red Sox certainly hope Breslow is more of a Tatis type, but time will tell. Um, wanted to mention very quickly for them just an interesting option situation that they had. Uh, Justin Turner declined his $13.4 million player option. And on the surface, that sounds kind of insane because Justin Turner, he's about to turn 39 and he was good for the Red Sox, but not amazing. He can't really play defense anymore. He's a slightly above average hitter, but he's injury prone. He's slow. He's got all that comes with being a 39-year-old hitter. He's got all the baggage that comes there. But the reason he declined it is it had a $6.7 million buyout. So he's really only leaving 6.7 on the table. No matter what, he was going to get that initial 6.7, whether he stayed or whether he left. So he just has to decide, can I beat 6.7 on the open market? And he's going to at least try. I don't think it's too unreasonable to expect him to get an 8 or $9 million deal just off the top of my head. I don't have that pulled up right now, but I certainly could. Um but that's that's the thought process there. It's not as unusual as it might seem. Yeah, that's not hard to beat, and I think he can beat it, which is why he upped it out. Um, it's a little bit tricky for us to model because are you modeling the thirteen point four, the six point seven? You know, and you know, it's just it's complicated. But but yeah, the common sense is yes, he can. He's already getting half of that basically, so he just needs to beat the other half, which I think he will. Um, he is battling father time, as you pointed out. He's going to be 39, so there's not too much gas left in the tank. Even so, you know, you could probably get 8 or 9 or $10 million out of that and beat the 13.4, so good for him. Yeah, and the other thing about that is you're not risking all that much, right? Right, right. You know, even, even if you don't beat the 6.7, well, guess what? You already have 6.7 in the bank, so it's not that huge of a deal. It's not like... I, I would be shocked if Turner settled for some minor league deal or two to three million or something like that. So like the the range of outcomes here are pretty limited for him given where he is, and it's a it's a worthwhile gamble, I would say. I mean, if you look at his um, fan graphs page, you know, it's one point two war. 
and that's largely because his defense is bad and he can't really he can't play third base anymore. He's basically a DH now, maybe a little time at first. But the hitting was fine. It was about above average, 114 WRC plus. So somebody could pay. You could see that as a DH, uh, eight, eight, eight or nine million. Yeah, sure. Sounds like a Marlin to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, moving down the list, we're into our kind of quick hits here at the end. The Reds declined their club option on Joey Votto, and this was kind of a formality. Uh, he was owed $20 million in that club option in 2024, and that just would not have been a good value for the Reds at all. And, and you know, if it was closer, if he, was, if he had performed a little bit better in 2023, you could squint and say, you know, yeah, it's a bit of an overpay, but... It's it's for a franchise legend, future Hall of Famer. Let's just do it. Let's just throw in the extra couple bucks. Um, but unfortunately, he was hurt most of last year in replacement level when he did play, and that just made it a no-brainer. Um, so they instead paid the $7 million buyout. He has said that he still wants to continue playing in 2024. We'll see whether that's with the Reds or with another team. Um, in the statement that the Reds released on declining his option, it seemed to hint that they just didn't have room for him in the current roster and, and quote, we cannot commit to the playing time Joey deserves, but we'll see how that goes. You know, maybe, maybe he catches on and gets either a starting or like a heavy platoon role with some other team and decides to take that. Or maybe the off season goes on. He doesn't get that starting role that he wants. And he comes back to the Reds in kind of a bench mentorship type role. Well, there's a lot of different outcomes here, but wanted to at least mention that given the caliber of player that Votto has been for his career, even even if there was no real question about the decision itself, um, it, it's at least a, a noteworthy move and a name that I'm personally going to keep an eye on this offseason as a, a big Joey Votto fan myself. And I was talking to my 13-year-old son about this. He's like, okay, but who's going to be their leader now? He was their leader. And I thought about it for a moment. I'm like, well... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you're not gonna pay $20, $20 million for just a clubhouse leader, right? You know, it's like, okay, fine. But who is there going to be their leader? I don't know. You lost because I think he has a point. You lost some like the, the, the adult in the room, right? It's a team full of kids. So who's going to be the adult in the room now? Maybe they're gonna have to sign somebody. Totally agree. Votto's done. He's about 40 years old, and he's not going to be worth $20 million anymore. He's been on the decline for a while. So, um, but all I could answer my son was, eh, Jonathan India? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't Luke know. Luke Maley. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, but look, they're obviously on a path to where they've got a lot of young talent. They've got some log jams, so clearly they needed the, the roster space there. So, But it is a legit question. Who's going to be their leader on the field? Who has that sort of gravitas? I don't know. That's what they're losing. Yeah. I'm hoping he can make his way back there, but we shall see. Um, the White Sox declined their option on Tim Anderson. They had a $14 million club option for him and instead will pay a $1 million buyout. This caught some headlines for sure, just because of, again, the name value, as we've seen in a lot of these different cases. But it's a no-brainer, again. You know, he really, really struggled in 2023. And it's been a pretty steady decline. He had a pretty strong three-year peak from 2019, 2020, 2021. But... The profile didn't have much room for error. And in the last two years, he's seen his defense take a bit of a step back. He's seen his strikeouts go up. He's seen his power disappear. 
and he did not have room for those things to happen. He had a 60 WRC plus last year. He's not an amazing defender, has had some clubhouse slash off field issues pop up. So a lot of different reasons here. It really seemed like it was the end of the road for these two parties. And, you know, someone's going to take a gamble on Anderson as a buy low guy. Um, there's, there's certainly something in there. There's certainly some potential and there's a lot of teams that will be interested in that, but clearly not even at the, the $14 million level, because otherwise the White Sox would have been able to trade him. And instead he's probably going to be settling more in the single digit range for his next contract, which is kind of what you have to do when you just had a, again, a 60 WRC plus season. That's, that's hard to do. Um, and it's, it's really hard to bounce back from that on the open market. So he's, he's going to have to take his lumps. He's going to have to go be a reclamation project somewhere and see if he can get back to form. Yeah. And I tweeted about this the other day, um, based on our model, he's worth about five. Um, so 14 is, so it makes sense for the White Sox to decline it. And clearly the time had come. It seemed like they were on the outs. It seems like he was done. And so he needed, and you know, he's getting booed. So he needs a change of scenery, um, and maybe some team will take a flyer on him if he can be the old Tim Anderson. But the other thing is, it goes back for a little bit further than just 2023. The second half of 2022, he was bad as well. And so you have to wonder if something has changed with him or whether it's a matter of pitchers found his weak spots and just been hammering him there, and he can't hit that. Partly a combination of that, because sometimes when that happens, you get frustrated and you can't figure out and you can't adjust, and then it's all downhill from there. I suspect it may be a story like that. So, um, but again, maybe somebody can help him fix that. And so, you know, if you take a five million dollar flyer on Tim Anderson as a bounce back candidate, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, look what the Cubs got out of Bellinger this year. He's not the same kind of player as Bellinger, but you know, it's a similar sort of case where okay. <laughs> this was bad, but you were good before that. So let's see if we can reclaim that. So somebody will take a chance on him, I think. Yeah, I, I think so. And there's enough teams with openings at shortstop or just on the middle infield that he'll yeah. find a spot. Um, last bit of news, the Dodgers extended Max Muncy. Uh, it's a two-year, $24 million extension with a club option for 2026. That's at $10 million. Previously, there was a $14 million option for 2024, but instead they've reworked it, tacked on a second year plus a club option there. Um, no brainer for the Dodgers, at least. And for Muncy, I think the way he's got to look at his whole career since joining the Dodgers is just total house money. You know, he wasn't that much of a prospect with the A's and he came up and didn't really do anything and he floundered around the league and didn't he didn't look like he had a big league future for a while there and suddenly found a home in Los Angeles blossomed into this pretty consistent power hitter with a little bit of defensive versatility. And so at this point, you know, even if he's leaving a little bit of money on the table here, it seems pretty clear that he likes it in Los Angeles. And like I said, he's kind of playing with house money. Like this isn't money he ever could have expected to be earning. So who is he to really push too hard? on the nitty-gritty of it he's still been a really productive player for them the last couple years he's certainly showed some signs of you know hitting his mid-30s here and it's going to run out at some point you know his his for whatever it's worth his batting averages have dipped in the last few seasons um but he's still a, a, a above average hitter by wrc plus still gets on base still hits a bunch of home runs and that's all the dodgers really need him to be they they have their average guys they, they need him to be a slugger and i would expect him to continue doing that over the next few years i think it's just a nice case of 
Max Muncy saying, hey, I like it here, telling his agent, yeah, uh, give me a couple more years here uh, while I'm still in my prime or close enough to it. And Dodger saying, yeah, we like you here too. So there was give on both sides. Yes, he left some money on the table, clearly. Um, but he also knows he is what he is, right? He's not a high average guy. He'll take his walks. He'll hit some bombs. You know, he's one of those guys. So uh, not a great defender, um, but, you know, he is what he is. And, you know, he's a force in the lineup when he's hot. So... Yeah, everybody's happy. I have nothing else to say. Cool. I've done a quick scan of MLB trade rumors. It doesn't look like anything else broke while we were recording, which makes sense because it is pretty late on Sunday night right now. Um, but is there anything else you want to either touch on or circle back to or anything before we call it a call it a wrap? No, just um, reiterate, hey, we launched a new site a couple of days ago. We weren't kidding when we said there was a new site coming. I know it was a, kind of a broken record for a while, but hey, we finally launched it, and I hope you like it. So uh, play around with it. Um, lots of new stuff to dig into. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. Yeah, I know I'm certainly enjoying it. Uh, it's, it, I'm so glad it's finally here. It's, it's very refreshing to look at. It works much quicker, loads much quicker. I've, I've been having a blast with it, and hopefully, all of our listeners, all of our users are as well. Um, but yeah, that will do it for today. I hope you all enjoyed. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues@gmail.com, or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues or on Blue Sky under the same name. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the offseason. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.